Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. Thanks for tuning in, BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please email hcls-startups at amazon.com. We're thrilled to welcome Michael Snyder, professor at Stanford, genomics and precision medicine pioneer and serial biotech entrepreneur to the show today. Thank you once again for joining us. Uh, to help co-host this episode, I'm joined by my colleague, Cade Shannon. Let's kick things off, Michael. Can you share a brief intro with us? Sure. Well, thanks for having me here. I'm professor and chair of the genetics department at Stanford. I also run the Center for Genomics and Personalized Medicine. Our shtick is all about big data and health. And as we've done a lot of research in this area, we've spun off some companies along the way. So maybe we'll talk about all these topics. Fantastic. Excited to dive in here. Um, and let's kind of rewind the clock to start. Can you tell us a little bit more about your, your personal journey? Uh, maybe take us kind of to where it all started and that path to where you are now, if you will. Okay, well, if you go far enough back in time, it used to be people studied genes and proteins one at a time. And in fact, people would build a whole thesis, if you will, around studying an individual gene, cloning it, and then characterizing it, or a protein, same thing. And really, I think our claim to fame, if you will, was coming up with the first project to study thousands of genes. In fact, all the genes, we used to work on yeast. We'd study them all at once and, and you know, try and figure out what they were doing in the systems level. And, uh, and that went really well. So we could go after biological problems by looking at all the components instead of one at a time. And then about nine years ago, well, 12 years ago, uh, I moved to Stanford and we wanted to take that same concept and apply it to medicine. The idea of instead of looking at just a few things, when you go to a doctor these days, you, you know, they'll measure maybe a dozen things, some of which aren't terribly useful. Uh, and we're capable of doing so much more. There's a lot of advanced technologies out there. So the, basically, when I moved to Stanford, that was the idea of bringing new technologies, ways of, of analyzing um, things at a systems level, if you will, systems medicine, uh, and try and transform what we're doing. Uh, in the healthcare system. Fantastic. I think that kind of builds into our next question. Uh, really would love to know throughout your career, what, what's, what's been your North Star, if you will, uh, the, kind of the, the common thread uh, tying all your work together? Uh, well, I guess it's to try and understand things in a holistic fashion. Uh, and as I say, we, instead of studying things a little piece at a time, you know, the analogy I like to make is a puzzle, the way we used to study systems was by looking at a single puzzle piece at a time. And of course, that's no way to see the whole picture. 
And so it really has been to try and see the whole picture by analyzing everything at once. And we've had to invent a lot of different technologies along the way. Our lab invented something called chip-chip, which is a way of finding where all your key regulators, transcription factors, that where they all bind at once. And we also invented RNA-seq and things like this. Uh, and so that was really, they were attempts, if you will, to be able to follow uh, everything at a systems level. And then, as I say, when we moved to Stanford, really just wanted to apply that to medicine. It became very clear to me that medicine is broken. And this is my North Star now, if you will. Uh, I just think the medical system, the way things are done, it, it, it's broken at so many different levels. We, we, we look at um, people, uh, first of all, usually when they're ill. Uh, we don't usually, you know, profile them, if you will, while they're healthy. Uh, there's, so there's very big focus on, on, on keeping people uh, or treating people who are already ill rather than keeping them healthy. So we want to change that. Uh, there's also this idea that, you know, everything, all your medical decisions are built around population-based measurements, and we think they should be built around individual-based measurements. And, and the best example I can think of that is oral temperature. I don't know if you know this, but you've been told since you were little that your oral temperature is 98.6. And first of all, that number is wrong. The median temperature is more like 97.6 or so. And But more importantly, there's a spread. 25% of people uh, their their temperature is 94.6 and the uh, 75th quartile is 99.1. So there's quite a spread. You're, you're saying that there's people that actually are hot-headed. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, and I guess cool-headed too. <laughs> but, but, but the point is that if, yeah, in today's world, if you go to a physician's office, your normal baseline is 94.6 and they measure you at 98.6, They'll tell you you're healthy, everything's fine, and you're not. You're up four degrees over your baseline. You're, you're ill. And so that's the concept that we've been really trying to push. You really need to know what your healthy baseline is so you can detect disease early prior to symptoms by seeing these shifts. And we think these new technologies out there uh, are capable of, of doing that. And so that's really our mission. It's really to transform healthcare, get, get it focused on health, yeah, us looking at things at a systems level, predict risk for a disease, catch disease early, and really work on keeping people healthy. So, you know, the, the goal is that people live long, healthy lives and then, quite frankly, just die uh, rather than sort of hang on there in a, a, a semi disease state. So, as we look kind of to the future and in the goals from your work here, uh, one question we love to ask our guests comes from Dennis Gabor electrical engineer and recipient of the 1971 Nobel Prize in Physics. Uh, he, he says the future cannot be predicted, but the future can be invented. Uh, could you tell us what does inventing the future mean to you? Oh, I think, yeah. So first of all, I 100% agree with that. I mean, I think we're going to look at things in, in you know, 2030 and look back today in 2021 and say, can you believe it? Those guys... Most of them didn't get their genome sequence for predicting their disease risk, and it took days to get their genome sequence back and interpreted. Uh, that, you know, we, can you imagine that? They went to, first of all, they used to go to a doctor's office to get <laughs> exams. You know, in the, in the future, medicine will be like Amazon, right? You, you, most of the stuff you'll do at home and mail in and get your results back or, or just total home tests. Uh, so I, I, I think that's where we're going to be, where we're... We're in a very primitive system right now. 
nobody wears uh, smartwatches for health anymore or at all, or very little, I should say. We're trying to change that. We'll probably talk about that. Uh, so I think this idea about, you know, having continuous sensing on people will just become standard, at least in my world, it will be. So, so I think, and I think there's going to be a ton of technologies to be invented. I know areas we'd like to get involved in that will really transform medicine so that in 2030, it really doesn't look like today. And, and we're doing things a hundred times better. So a striking aspect of your work is the history you have creating technologies to generate personalized data sets and of aggregating those data sets to advance patient health. So let's kick things off with your thoughts on the technologies that enable big data collection. In 2001, you created the first proteome chip for any organism, and then in 2003, the first high-resolution tiling array for the human genome. What was the original vision behind your work in genomics and proteomics? Yeah, well, it was really to study biological problems at the time. Uh, we used to do a lot in the area of cell biology, trying to understand chromosome segregation, how chromosomes you know, segregate faithfully during mitosis, and also cell polarity, how do cells know where to grow and things like that. Again, and, and we invented a lot of these technologies to study this at a systems level. Uh, and then, as I mentioned earlier, we, we then shifted it, uh, just decided, I was at Yale at the time, and we used to, uh, you know, it was easy to apply these to biology. It was a lot harder to apply it to medicine because I wasn't in a medical school. So when I moved to Stanford, I'm now right in a medical school, and it's very, very easy to get access to patients and really see the problems firsthand that you'd like to solve. So, so the goal is really to take these same technology we invented as well as technologies other people invented. We don't really invent much in wearables, but we come up with new applications, new ways to use them. Uh, and and we, we do that. We'll take them and, and then apply it to try and better understand medicine. But we do have to come up with a lot of methods for analyzing data, uh, integrating data. We're, we're very keen on this concept of longitudinal profiling. It's not just about generating big data on people, uh, but it's also in the case of, of people and following their health, it's profiling them longitudinally. So you can see shifts, you can follow their health state, if you will, at a level no one's ever been able to do before, and then catch disease early long before symptoms. And, and that's really the, the, the vision we invented the technologies and now, as I say, are applying it to human health. Uh, I, I would argue we do this in several ways. One is we, in, in the lab, it's a research project. We take all these technologies, try them out. We do very, very deep profiling on people. We'll sequence their genome. We do that once, but we'll take their blood and urine and microbiomes, their poop, uh, and we'll analyze as many molecules as possible with, by following their RNA and proteins, metabolites, lipids, like you say, the microbes, um, and, and we'll, we'll collect data very, very deep, and then we'll do it longitudinally to see what you know their health state looks like, how does it change. It's really taught us a ton, actually. We learned you want some fun side stories here? You know, we learned that people have pretty strong seasonal patterns. You can see, um, you know, seasonal patterns uh, um, in 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 the way their profiles change. It's kind of fun. Um, most people are studying. It's a small group, 109 people. They're all eager beavers, and and we see two biological seasons in California. A lot of molecules peak late April, early May, where allergens are rampant and things like that, and then others 
molecules peak in winter when people often get viral infections, things like that. Uh, the other thing we've been able to do is see how people age. Actually, it's kind of cool because we've been profiling people long enough. We can see how people are aging and, and actually people are aging differently. Uh, that is to say, um, some people are more cardio agers, so their heart uh, systems seem to be aging. Other people are more metabolic agers. Others are more immune agers. It's, it's really quite interesting as you profile people longitudinally. Um, the last thing I'll say is that, you know, the, the main power of the big data was that we wanted to just see if it could be used to, you know, uh, again, catch people, follow, follow their health and see if we could catch disease early. And from the 109 people we've been studying, just in the first three plus years, 49 of them learned something really, really important about their health. Like we caught someone with early lymphoma, two people with pre-cancers, two people with serious heart issues, all before they had symptoms. So, so these are a big deal. We, we, you know, we'd like to think they're life-saving. So, so the big data and the longitudinal profiling was just very, very powerful for pro profiling people's health and then being able to, again, catch these aberrant situations. And, and it was no one technology that did it. That's the power of all this. Sometimes it was your genome sequence that predicted risk. Sometimes it was the metabolic profiling. Sometimes we, we have some imaging in there. It was, it was that as well. So all, the combination of these technologies has turned out to be very, very powerful. And I think it's the future of medicine. Yeah, and so you've actually kind of transitioned already into our next topic, which is you've written and spoken extensively on health as the intersection of an individual's genome and exposome. And we're the first to create an integrated and longitudinal personal omics profile to assess disease risk and monitor disease states, as you were just saying. How would you, um, but that kind of leads us into big data and how would you define big data with regards to health and how that definition has changed over time? Yeah, well, it's it's all new, I would argue now, certainly in the medical system, it's not there. Um, but that's what we're trying to change. Uh, in fact, uh, but it, what I think it is, and in, in I hope the not too distant future, it'll be getting your genome sequence so you can predict your genetic risk for disease. We're working on new technologies for that. But it's also these big data, it's, it's these deep molecular measurements uh, on proteins, RNA, metabolites, that can give insights into your biological state, if you will. And when you see shifts, like if you start seeing liver molecules shifting in either the RNA or proteins, you can catch that early. And by having big data profiles, you do much, much better than what's being done in the clinical tests. Now, I wanna be clear that what we're doing is research. We don't know which technology is gonna be the best, the easiest to act on. And of course, some of them are really expensive. Some of them are not so expensive. They're pretty cheap. And so we evaluate all that as, as we uh, go along. So I think um, in the future, I'm hopeful that a subset of these things will become routine to get sort of deep profiles on people as, as part of their normal healthcare. And I think to help promote that, we've launched, uh, you know, some companies. So what I'm doing in the lab is a research project uh, to be able to do these deep profiles on people. But uh, the way to scale this, we think, is to spin off companies. So we formed a company, QBio, for example, that does a medical version of what I just described, but also adds whole body MRI, which we think is, is a pretty big deal. Um, and I can tell you, there's still bucks against medical establishment. Certainly when we started, 
virtually everyone said sequencing people's genomes is a bad idea. You're going to get people paranoid about their genetic risk and they're going to do zillions of dollars of follow-up tests, et cetera. And now I don't think, uh, still some people say that not so much, uh, but it's true in the whole body MRI field. All physicians hate that. Uh, and we think it's quite valuable. They'll, they'll tell you, you shouldn't get whole body MRIs because you'll see nodules. Men always have nodules in the prostate. Women have them in their ovaries and they're there, but that's not the point. We all have them. The point is, are any of them growing? And the only way you know that is to get multiple samples over time. And if you see any growing, well, then you worry about it. So what you're looking for is growing nodules, not nodules. And a good example is I have a dense spot on my spine and it's not growing. It's, this is not uncommon. 10% of people have this. Uh, but if I were to get cancer and then they did a whole body MRI, they'd see this thing on my spine and say, oh, it probably metastasized. But it's always been there. And so we think it's very useful to have these baseline deep data measurements on people so that you can see shifts. And, and again, that's been very, very powerful for me. Uh, I've had two major health discoveries on me as we've done this profiling. I'm one of the 109 and happy to talk about that further if you like. Yes, actually, we'd love to hear you know a little bit more about your experience as part of this study. Okay, so uh, basically, I you know I was the first participant. We usually run, um, we do a lot of different sub studies as part of this. I'm usually the guinea pig, so I was the first person to do. But I was profiling myself, if you will, and I sequenced my genome and saw it's the risk for a number of factors, but the one near the top of the list was type 2 diabetes, which kind of surprised me. Didn't expect that at the time. Uh, but we were carefully measuring all these things, including glucose. And so, uh, but my genome predicted, and, and people, nobody would have expected me to be type 2 diabetic. I'm pretty thin. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't think I had a family history at the time. In hindsight, it probably was there. Uh, but I grew up in rural America where people don't really study that stuff so much. So anyway, the point is, um, yeah, I was, I had normal glucose, but my, my genome says high risk. And actually we were on the lookout for this. Uh, I went in for an, what's called an insulin resistance test. And sure enough, uh, uh, when I went in, it turns out my, uh, that particular time, my glucose had spiked, uh, very high. And in fact, to the point where I was classified as diabetic. And it came right after a nasty viral infection. So what we think is that the, um, I'm genetically predisposed and this viral infection triggered it. And it went really high, went to 6.7 hemoglobin A1C, which is diabetic range is 6.5. So uh, I totally changed my lifestyle, got it under control, although it did come back several years later, also after a nasty viral infection. I got it under control by exercise and, and totally changing my diet. So anyway, the point out of all this is that my genome was very, very powerful for predicting that disease risk. And then, of course, the profiling helped me catch it when it first happened so I could manage it. Um, it's kind of interesting, too, for the for the geeks out there. Uh, it turns out when my when my um, uh, diabetes first came on, it turns out my epigenome is what changed. And so what we think is viral, viral infections can actually alter your epigenome, meaning your, in this case, your methylated DNA uh, and, and probably cause shifts in, in, in my case, in, in expression of metabolic genes. So uh, anyway, that's, we think that's very pertinent to the pandemic now, because as you may know, quite a few people are becoming type two diabetic uh, after a COVID infection. I've, I think it's like 4% increase 
So, uh, yeah, the bottom line is that this is a, a, a problem and it'll be interesting to see if their epigenetics change as well. So anyway, the diabetes was one thing I caught by doing these deep profiles. Another thing was Lyme disease. If we imagine we'll get in the wearables and I can tell you about that story uh, now or later, but we think wearables are going to be very, very powerful for catching all kinds of diseases. Thanks for tuning in, BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please email hcls-startups at amazon.com. So Mike, just want to tag in for a second. You mentioned the idea of measuring someone's kind of methylation, their epigenome uh, kind of around these different CPG sites. Curious if you thought about the idea of kind of what would be perhaps uh, an epigenetic version of 23andMe. Um, Is that something that your lab is at all dove into or think might become a thing in the future? Uh, I think a version of that's there now for following aging. Aging. So you may know Steve Horvath's work, where you or can the act- clock. Yep. Yep. The epigenetic clock, and that really is the best aging clock out there. Uh, we think some of the personal clocks we have give better resolution, but his is certainly the best general clock. So I think that version's out there. But what you say, I think, would be very interesting to do. Now we haven't implemented because it's kind of expensive to do at high resolution the way we'd like to do the whole genome, figure out what the most important sites are and then drill in and and make chips out of that. And and we will do that at some point, it's just kind of expensive. So, uh, but I I do think that could be quite powerful. Uh, I think the question, yeah, we just don't know what areas to interrogate. Meaning uh, for me, I'd like to be, make sure we have metabolic genes, uh, you know, areas that control metabolic genes, because I think they're going to be the most important for diabetes. So we'd like to see that assay. But we did do a project to actually look at at cancer. So you may know for familial cancer, that's often due to mutations in BRCA, BRCA1, BRCA2. Uh, And it, it, but that's only about 15% of the the time in the case of breast cancer, in the case of you can add in other genes, a whole slew of other genes, and you can get another 15%. So uh, familial breast cancer, we can explain about 30%. People kind of ignore the 70% you can't follow. So I think actually epigenetics could be very, very powerful for following familial cancer, uh, and it's due to SNPs that cause epigenetic changes. So, so that's my own bias. We, we did one study that sort of backs up part of that we could add another about 8% from epigenetic changes. So I think that'd be a great area to explore. So Mike, I actually want to follow up on something you said during that. You talked about kind of the cost with these in-depth profilings that you are you know, doing as part of the study in your lab. But then you also have a few companies that you founded in this space. You mentioned KeyBio, but also Protometrics and Affomix that are trying to kind of 
bring these tests out more broadly and use them to actually improve patient outcomes. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, what those companies are doing and how they're applying the work in your lab, the work that you're doing in your lab a little bit more broadly? Yeah, sure. So I think there are two that are most relevant to this health space. One is QBio, which is doing a medical version of what I was describing, doing very deep medical measurements along with whole body MRI to collect data on people longitudinally. And it is kind of pricey. It's $3,500 per visit. Uh, and, you know, we're recommending every six months. Now, that's only because that's a way to get started. You know, nobody knows how often you should be profiling people while they're healthy. And it probably probably want to do it more as people get older because their chance of acquiring disease is much higher. But anyway, so that's the cost. Now, you can argue that's either really expensive or not so bad. Uh, it's, it's expensive in general because you have to pay out of pocket. The, our system, here's another way in which the healthcare system's broken. Nobody pays to keep you healthy. You have to pay for it out of your own pocket. Uh, yet one could argue that, especially for people at risk for cardiovascular disease, they, you know, it's very expensive if someone gets a heart attack and goes on long-term disability, things like that. So one can easily make a, an argument that paying $3,500 twice a year is a great way to save money uh, and prevent cardiovascular diseases that, that could, you know, really tax the, the medical system. So, so I think we should be putting more money up front to keep people healthy. Uh, anyway, that's an expensive, one of the more expensive ones. The other company that's very relevant is a company called January AI. They're involved in medical health, or sorry, metabolic health. And um, that comes out of our wearable work. So um, basically, it, you know, we're, we're doing a lot with wearables, mostly smartwatches. I'll tell you more about that in a little bit. But we also do something called continuous glucose monitoring. So par partly because of my type 2 diabetes, we follow this area pretty closely. And um, it turns out that um, we, you know, when these monitors first came out, people were putting them on type 1 diabetics. These, these, these are monitors that follow people's glucose every five minutes. And they're powerful because they can tell you when your, your glucose is getting out of control. And they were being used for type 1 diabetics and insulin-dependent type 2 diabetics. So what we realize is that these things actually are kind of interesting, and maybe we should see what they, you know, what, what's going on with normal people and pre-diabetics. So we start putting them on just that, normal people and pre-diabetics, and a few diabetics. And what we discovered is that there's a lot of normal people who are pretty uh, moderate or severe spikers. And of course, a lot of pre-diabetics are severe spikers, meaning after they eat a meal, their glucose will spike like mad. And it, what's interesting is that it's very person specific. So some people will spike the pasta, other people to say grapes, other people to bananas. And uh, Aaron Siegel has shown that in part, it's likely due to, well, part of it's due to the microbiome, although it's more than that. A lot of it's the uh, specific food and, and probably other aspects of, of personalization. So anyway, the point is that different people spike to different foods. And so what that means these monitors actually tell you which foods you spike to. So we think that's powerful because all you have to do then is wear the monitor. It's very eye-opening. You'll, you'll see what foods spike you. And then what January AI is setting up to do, or not setting up, they are doing it, is we have food recommenders. We say, look, this food spikes you. Keep away from that. That food doesn't spike you. That's fine. And here's recommendations for a food you should eat that won't spike you. 
And it's all very logical. We have a lot of artificial intelligence to really uh, make this a very robust system. But the point is that it comes back to this personalization I mentioned. So we can have people eating foods that are good for them and, and not good uh, and avoid those that are not good. So why is this a big deal? Well, 9% of the U.S. population is type 2 diabetic and 33% are pre-diabetic. And those numbers are getting worse. And, and 90% or sorry, 70% of the pre-diabetics will become diabetic. So it's really, really important we get this under control. To be honest, it's an endemic that's worse than uh, COVID. So we have those populations getting very overweight, diabetic, and it, it's just a train going off the track. So we really need to bring folks under control. We think this continuous glucose monitoring can be a very powerful means. We, we have other um, uh, th systems we use as well. We have a pretty extensive database of foods for what's called uh, GIGL uh, in, the, in the company. So anyway, the point is that it's a whole metabolic health ma uh, management system that we've set up to help better people control their glucose and, and metabolic health in general. And I think that's going to be super powerful in the future, as I say, for trying to get people's uh, better eating habits and such, get, get this all under control. I definitely agree. And it'll be fantastic to see the impact of that as things move forward. Um, before we move on to wearables, one, one more question on a slightly different track that I'd love to ask. So in addition to being an amazing you know, researcher, you're also an experienced entrepreneur. And so before we move on, we'd love to see if you have any advice for those in our audience who are interested in starting a company at the intersection of big data and health. Yeah, well, I'd say pick an area that um, where you know, not much is happening uh, and areas where you're saying, gosh, I wish there was this out there. And then think about what the product is. In our case, it's easy because we're an academic lab and our mission is to discover new concepts, show proof of principle. Uh, I, I'm a believer academics are terrible at scaling. Uh, they generally think they're good at it, but they're not. Companies are really good at that. So in our lab, if we discover something interesting or show proof of principle, we think, gosh, wouldn't that be valuable if that went out to the whole world? Then we'll spin off a company. Not every time, but just sometimes. Uh, and that's where QBio and January AI came out of. They, they were like, this big data stuff would be very, very powerful for helping people better manage their health and uh, January AI on the metabolic side. And, and there's a zillion other things out there one could do as well. So I think if you're out there and you're, you're saying, gosh, I wish there were this, and it has to be scalable. It can't just be a cute idea. It has to be a system uh, that you know, everybody wants or, or you think should want and should be useful. And I, I think that's the key. Now, in my case, what I'm, I'm I like to think I'm an okay scientist, but I know I'm not a good business person. So I always team up with a business person to help formulate the business plan. And then uh, essentially between the science and the business, we'll spin off something that we think will be highly impactful. And so, and so fortunately, it's worked out that way. Um, one company called Personalis, they're doing great. They were a genome sequencing company. We set that up after we sequenced my genome and realized, gosh, this was pretty powerful. I don't want my lab sequencing, you know, tens of thousands of genomes this is what a company should do. And so they set up to do that. And now they're, they're just way, you know, their orders of magnitude better than my lab at sequencing and interpreting genomes. They've 
pivoted mostly to the cancer space because that's where the market is. But um, anyway, that uh, they went public a couple of years ago and, and did very well. So bottom line is, um, yeah, again, once we set up something, think it's kind of useful to get out to the world, um, then we spin it off. And so I think for those of you who are out there, you can do the same. I like to bounce ideas off of, I have some entrepreneur friends or venture capitalists, I should say. I usually bounce my ideas off them and they'll refine it and say, well, Mike, you really need to think about how to scale that bigger because that's only gonna hit a small market and uh, you know, no, nobody's gonna wanna invest in you. Um, so the way we do it, I guess, to get in more detail, I'm sure most of the listeners know this, but we'll, you know, come up with a concept, talk to venture capitalists who would be willing to fund this. And, and we like to find venture capitalists who will stay with us, who might invest in early rounds, but continue later, uh, possibly all the way till the time we go public. Fantastic. Well, I hope we can find someone to partner on there, Mike, in the not too distant future. That'd be great. <laughs> Um, and as we, we dive into wearables here, as you alluded, uh, you started your career really more focusing on uh, developing lab tools for big data and then made the switch to wearables for personalized medicine. Uh, what, what got you excited about the space? Yeah, well, we were doing these deep profiles on people, these molecular profiles, omics profiles, if you will, following people over time. And then out came the fitness trackers and <laughs> Fitbit. Apple Watch didn't exist at the time, even a company called Jawbone. And what we realized was that, gosh, these are pretty powerful physiological monitors. They're not just fitness trackers. So people would buy these things, wear for three months, understand their patterns, toss in a drawer. And we thought, well, gosh, aren't these great physiological monitors for following people's help 24-7? So we just, you know, it's part of our let's collect data on people and see what we can learn. So we we put them on our, our group of people, this 109 people all got a smartwatch and put them on. And, you know, we started learning amusing things. It's this, it's this concept. Again, I was telling you, you get, you figure out what people's baseline are and then you look for shifts. And, you know, one amusing thing we discovered right away is on airplanes, your blood oxygen drops. Now that's known already. It's not known to most people. Pilots know it. Flight attendants don't. Uh, and most average people don't know that. So, and that's because they don't pressurize the cabin. You probably know they pressurize it to about 8,000 feet equivalent. And so you're, you're, the blood, or sorry, the uh, air pressure drops and therefore uh, your, your um, blood oxygen drops and your heart rate goes up. And so we discovered that was kind of amusing. Uh, but what wasn't in the literature, by the way, is that you get tired. We think the reason you get tired on airplanes because you're, blood oxygen drops that nobody had ever shown that before, believe it or not. It's pretty obvious in hindsight. Uh, and then, but I think where what we discovered almost right away, again, it should have been obvious, I think, in, in hindsight, but we figured out my Lyme disease from a smartwatch and what's called a pulse ox, which measures your blood oxygen. And the story there, which intersects with what I was just saying, is that I was helping my brother put up fences in rural Massachusetts, and two weeks later was flying to Norway through Frankfurt. And on that, as you can tell, I measure myself all the time. I've given, I don't know, 300 or more blood samples over the last, uh, I guess, 11 and a half years. Uh, and, and, you know, tests, I'm wearing four smartwatches right now. You can't see my glucose monitor as well. 
So uh, I, I'm a big believer in all those stuff. But anyway, on this last flight from Frankfurt to Norway, my blood oxygen dropped way more than normal. And my heart rate went up and, and they didn't return to normal after we landed. So I knew something was off. Uh, and then I later got ill. So again, I wasn't symptomatic, but later I got ill. And uh, I went find, so I went to a doctor in, or ill, meaning had symptoms. So I went to a doctor in Norway kind of warned him it might be Lyme disease because two weeks after I'd been in this area uh, in, in Massachusetts. And, you know, he, he measured my, my blood and said, hey, monocytes are up, you got a bacterial infection. And he wanted to give me penicillin. I said, no, I need doxycycline, which is what you use for Lyme. And uh, as you might imagine, it was a little tense for a few moments there because, you know, no doctor really likes their patient telling you what to prescribe. But uh, anyway, he did give in, gave me the doxycycline, which cleared it up right away. You do take it for two weeks. And when I got back, I got measured. And sure enough, I was here positive for Lyme. Uh, and um, I had actually happened to get blood three days before I left on the trip. And I was here negative. And so it's very well controlled experiment. Very, very clear. Like here converted during that time meaning got uh, the antibodies to, to Lyme. And so what was powerful about the story is that with a simple smartwatch and pulse ox, we could actually pick up my Lyme disease prior to symptom onset. So that prompted us to look at basically all the data ahead of time. I had uh, two years of data. It was a watch uh, that was relatively primitive by today's standard called a basis watch. Uh, did measure a lot of different things. Um, and we had two years of data from that watch and so looked at it. And there were four periods in which I was ill. There was a line time, two viral infections, and a fourth time I was asymptomatic, but I had high what's called C-reactive protein. And every single time I was ill, I had high heart rate. And it turns out I had high skin temperature as well. We, in hindsight, I saw that was true for the Lyme. Uh, I didn't catch it at the time because I wasn't watching that closely, I guess. Uh, but anyway, uh, we the, from these two years of data, every single time I was ill, I had high heart rate, high skin temperature. So we wrote an algorithm, it's retrospect, and put it on retrospective data and could show that every single time I got ill, we could, we could pick up this jump up, and this is resting heart rate, I should say, but we could see this in advance of symptoms. And every single time, very, very clear, it didn't, uh, it, yeah, we call the algorithm change of heart. Uh, we also applied it to three other people who got ill, one of whom got ill twice. And every single time, all four times, we could pick up their illness prior to symptom onset. Again, in retrospective studies. Now, it should have worked for skin temperature, but it, it worked on me and one other person. But um, in the end, we, we couldn't get it working quite as well for skin temperature, I think, because not everyone wears a watch tightly. Uh, but the net result was we could show with a smartwatch that we could pick up illness prior to symptom onset from uh, Lyme and respiratory illnesses. So as you might imagine, we were, we were further developing both the algorithms and starting to build an infrastructure, which we've now built. We'll have a big paper coming out on this called uh, Personal Health Dashboard. But we built this infrastructure. It's in the cloud. It can actually follow millions of people. And so, uh, and we improved the algorithms and, and once you know it, of course, along comes the pandemic, uh, March, 2020. And we were, we were already running this study, but we scaled up by or B made us shift it to COVID-19, which we did very quickly enrolled 5,300 people 
in this study. And the goal was to see if could we detect COVID illness, it's a two-part study, can we detect COVID illness with a smartwatch? And then the second part of the study, which I'll tell you about in a minute, you know, can we alert people if we can do that uh, to let them know when they're getting ill? So the first part of the study, it turns out, worked quite well. The very first patient person we got who had, we had 32 people who got COVID uh, who were wearing a, a Fitbit. That's the one we started with at the time. And they had Fitbit data, they'd gotten COVID, and they had a diagnosis date and a symptom date. And the very first one, we actually showed we could see this jump up arresting heart rate, very, very clear signal, nine and a half days prior to symptom onset. So that was very encouraging to us. Then we looked at all 32 and for 26, 80% of them, we could see this jump up arresting heart rate at or before the time of symptoms. And the median was four days. So four days before a symptom onset, we'd see this. And as they say, for some people, it's as much as 10 days. So uh, that oh, worked. incredible. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, pretty cool, isn't it? So uh, and it was actually seven days before diagnosis. Now, it's not specific for COVID. Other illnesses would trigger it, as you might imagine, just from what I told you earlier, like the Lyme and things. Uh, there, it's only two days prior to symptoms. All right. So that worked well. And then we basically, it's uh, 10 months ago, love to have all the listeners sign up for the study. We set up a real-time detection system for detecting illness. It'll send a signal you actually have to push a button in the future. We want to make it automatic. But right now, uh, it, it what it's doing, it measures your real time. We, we further the algorithms. And we can, and, and so every day you, you push a button, you see whether you're green or red. <laughs> if you're red, it means you have an abnormal signal. So what we're doing is we're following your baseline measurements. Okay, we've done a couple of ways. One is hour by hour. A simpler version is more from overnight. Uh, we, we follow your, your resting heart rate and some other parameters. And when we see an abnormality, and meaning in this case, jump, it jumps up for resting heart rate plus other things, and it's up long enough, it's an outlying measurement. It's an anomaly detection algorithm, if you will. And so what it does is it, it can tell you when you've got an, you know, an anomalous signal and it sends a red alert. And so, but you do have to click it. In the future, like I say, it should just show up automatically on your phone. And it works. It turns out it works 80% of the time again. Uh, and it, it so, so far, uh, yeah, out of 84 people, forgot what the number is, whatever 80% of 84 is, uh, probably 60 some people have gotten a red alert. Again, in this case, a median of three days before symptom onset. And what was really, really cool is that and it also picks up asymptomatic cases. So 14 of 18 asymptomatic cases, people who tested positive to random screening, we actually see an elevated signal, again, at or prior to their, their test date in that case, usually at, in this, or sorry, usually prior to signal onset. So the point is we can even pick up asymptomatic cases. So we think this is the future and and that you would be wearing these. We, we want to get higher resolution, better data. I know we can improve on 80%. That's our mission. So we want everyone here to sign up for our study, innovations.stanford.edu slash wearables, innovations.stanford.edu slash wearables. Sign up for a study. Uh, you have to have a smartwatch. It works for Apple Watch, works for Fitbit, and I'm sure it's going to work for others. We just don't have as many users yet. Uh, and, and it's pretty cool. Now, I, I should warn you, it's not just COVID that 
can trigger these alarm. Other illnesses can do it. Uh, and then other things will do it too. So for example, if you've been drinking way too much, not one or two drinks for dinner, that won't do it. But if you really tie one on, your heart rate will go uh, a bit off and that'll actually set off a red alarm too. Uh, and so will, you know, hiking in the mountains, low, you know, high altitude, uh, low oxygen sites will trigger it. So you do have to contextualize the alarms, but we've tuned the alarm so they go off roughly every six weeks on average. Uh, which is a background most people think is acceptable. Uh, and that gives pretty good sensitivity. Like I say, 80% of the time, we can tell when you're getting ill from COVID and we think other viral infections too. So we think this is the future that people will be wearing some sort of wearable, whether it's a watch or a ring. Should point out now, other groups have shown that you could detect COVID with with watches, but they haven't set up uh, this this early detection part, like the, the pre-symptomatic detection that, that we've been doing. So we, we do think this is the future. And, and this relates to a comment you made earlier, which is how do we get this out to everyone? Well, smartwatches are really cheap. I think in the future, they'll be $50. And you could put one on every person in the planet. 60% of the planet has a smartphone, by the way. So all you have to do is pair with the smartwatch and you've got a health monitoring system for 60% of the planet right now. Jeff Bezos could pay for it and still money left over. So that, that we think this is just a, a very low hanging fruit for having an early detection system for billions of people. And we built a whole system that can do this, that can measure millions of people in real time. Uh, we haven't yet scaled it to billions, but uh, we're pretty confident we could follow millions of people in real time and ping them with these alarms. Uh, and, and so we, we think it's, this, this is the future. We think it's going to be really, really powerful for early disease detection. Fantastic, Mike. And wow, what an amazing response your team has put together for COVID. And I hope our listeners, you take you up and sign up for the study you mentioned as well. Um, so moving forward, uh, it, I think you've painted a very clear vision for how wearables can fit into this future of global health uh, that's ahead of us. I, I think you've established some great reasons and rhymes behind why wearables might be a third pillar of information along with a genome and exposome. Uh, how do you see wearables playing a role in the future ahead? Well, just like I said, in my world, everybody would have a smartwatch, even kids. Because, uh, you know, I can't think of a single parent who didn't go through an episode where they're in a store, you know, they're grabbing something off the shelf, they look down for where their kid is, and, you know, the kid's gone. <laughs> you know, of course, it's right around the corner at the comic book section or something. But uh, the, the point is that um, there is where the candy section the yeah so and if you had a smartwatch you'd be able to track all this stuff it may, and it, we may get past uh smartwatches and rings and may turn out to be implantables but they'll not only be able to sort of help track you but they'll also you know track your health and we think that's so important you don't drive your car around without a dashboard right it tells you how your car is doing your speed all the sort of stuff and you do it because it helps you monitor what's going on when you're driving Yet we run around right now without, uh, you know, any external sensors that could really help us detect disease early. And it's just crazy. So I think these wearables are, are going to be the future for following people's health. And as I say, they may transition to impl implantables at some point. Um, yeah, uh, there are issues around privacy. A lot of people 
seem scared of, oh, you know, this data is going to be misused. And, and, you know, if that's the case, then I think we need laws to protect that. Uh, I'm a little less worried about that because right now we actually all share, you know, we all have credit cards. So we share credit card information with, you know, a credit card company. And we do it because it's convenient. It basically, nobody wants to run around, walk around with bags of cash, whereas you can just use a, a credit card. So, uh, yeah, and people are very comfortable with that. They assume the credit card won't abuse that information. And so we just need to set up the same thing for health where, you know, people get used to that. Yep, somebody could be monitoring your health. And, uh, you know, it, it, obviously you shouldn't get abused for that. If, if that's the case, we need laws to protect people. So that's my thoughts about privacy. Fantastic, Mike. It's been almost an action-packed hour here. Uh, would love to cap things off with a few rapid-fire questions before we come to a closing here. Sure. So, Mike, what advice would you give to rising star professors looking to entrepreneurialize their labs? Well, I think when you're a professor, you're really out, again, to discover new knowledge, maybe show proof of principle. And if you do something that said, all right, this is pretty cool, and I wish millions of people could have access or do a thing, spin off a company. Definitely file IP on everything you do that you think might be useful because uh, I think that will be powerful. So, uh, but I do think, again, academics should be very focused on academics, especially a new professor. They want to get tenure. Um, so get your papers out, get your grants. But if you do something useful, yeah, then, then file for IP. Uh, talk to most institutions have a way of, of licensing and, and but you want to get yourself teamed up with some venture capitalists who will, who can give you good advice for how to commercialize it. So Alex might be believe that the key to changing the world really starts with identifying the right problems to solve. Would, would love your viewpoint here as you kind of gaze into the crystal ball. Uh, what would you say are the grand challenges of life sciences that we may face in the next 20 years? Oh, there's a lot of them. I mean, if you look at the medical system, I mentioned before, it's broken. It's broken in so many ways. The doctor's office today looks pretty similar to the doctor's office of 40 years ago. Really, you know, a few devices have shifted. People even use stethoscopes when you could use much more advanced technology. There's something you approve on right away. Uh, yeah. And, and this idea of everything's focused on sick care shifting to healthcare and following people in, in their own home. You know, why, why, uh, what it, we do all our shopping now at home. <laughs> why are we doing all our healthcare in a physician's office? Uh, so there's a lot of opportunities there. Uh, yeah. So just step back and think about what's not right. What should be better. And you'll think of a hundred things in about five minutes. <laughs> Those could all be companies. You have to figure out what the right solution is. But it's, it's exactly what you're saying. It's a matter of um, finding an area where there's just opportunity. And in the medical space, there's a ton. There's new technologies coming out all the time. Uh, and, and there's new areas that need to be invented. Uh, right now, I mentioned we follow glucose every five minutes. But wouldn't it be nice to follow stress markers, other things? So I know there are companies working on cortisol sensing and companies that should be working on other sort of things, inflammation markers, things like that. So I, I think there's a ton of opportunities out there. Just pick an area that, gosh, I wish we had this, that would really help that. 
and off you go. And, and certainly integrating diverse data types is a big deal, Point, making sense of data. Uh, we're, at, we're at the early stages of all that. So building off that, what do you think biotech or health tech will look like in 2050? What do you think it will be? Oh, I think you wake up in the morning, you will, you know, uh, you'll, you'll prick your, your finger and get, I don't know, 500 analytes measured that are important for your health. And you'll look in the mirror and it'll have some reading. Now, you don't want to see all 500. You'll get, it'll give you a reading that says, you know, cardiovascular system, good, check. <laughs> you know, um, liver functions, good, check. You know, metabolic functions, not so good. You know, these are the five, you, you touch that screen and it will find three things that are off and you say, uh-oh, I better be doing something about my metabolic health. So I think a lot of this will be all home testing. Now, some of it you may have to uh, measure samples and mail in and get your results, uh, kind of like you do for COVID PCR tests now, uh, and um, get back results, you know, in hopefully a day or two. Now, there'll still be a need for big equipment. I think people, I hope uh, MRIs uh, will become commonplace right now. They're not because again, the medical system's broken on that one. Uh, so you go get yourself scanned. Your genome only tells you so much. It can tell you risk for cancer. So can blood tests tell you now or do early cancer detection. But I think we're still going to need imaging and whole scans to be able to see you know, early signs of nodules and things and, and find those that are growing. So I envision that some form of what I just said will be when you show up at CVS to go pick up some of your prescriptions. I know a lot of it will be mailed, but in some cases you may go there for various things and you'll probably stop in and get your whole body MRI in my mind. Uh, and and because that, that's big equipment that won't be at home. And so that's what I see a lot of home testing and, and things done in, in, you know, at supermarkets or drugstores, what have you. And I, I think your employer should take a more active responsibility in ma maintaining people's health. The, the biggest problem is who pays to keep you healthy? And right now, nobody does. So we have to shift that. And I would argue employers are one of the ways to do that. It's in their best interest to keep their workers healthy and happy because they'll be more productive. And so I could see big companies, even places like Stanford, having programs that would focus on wellness. They already do, but not at the level I'd like to see it happen. Mike, you mentioned the Stanford wearable study you're running. Uh, any other shameless plugs or closing thoughts you'd like to share with our audience? No, we're running a lot of studies, so feel free to visit the website. Uh, go to Snyder Lab and look for uh, our studies page. We have a half a dozen studies. Some of them you have to be in the Bay Area to participate. A lot of them are remote. Love to have as many of you sign up as possible. Uh, yeah, other than that, I'd say, you know, we're always uh, trying to uh, push the envelope. So I think any insights people have, uh, we certainly search out uh, support for these our studies, both for people participating in them, and we are getting contributions to help promote our research too. So all that is good. Well, fantastic, Mike. Thank you for an absolutely incredible episode. I'm sure Alyssa will be craving for more here. We're grateful, very grateful for your time. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in, BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. 
The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please email hcls-startups at amazon.com. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.